Turn to Colossians chapter 1. Colossians chapter 1. We're studying Paul's prayer for the Colossian believers in Colossians 1, 9 to 14. We started last week. We'll complete it tonight. So let's read that first of all. Colossians chapter 1, verses 9 to 14. It says there, uh, Paul says, For this reason also, since the day we heard of it, we have not ceased to pray for you and to ask that you may be filled with the knowledge of his will and all spiritual wisdom and understanding, so that you will walk in a manner worthy of the Lord to please him in all respects, bearing fruit in every good work and increasing in the knowledge of God, strengthened with all power according to his glorious might, for the attaining of all steadfastness and patience, joyously giving thanks to the Father who has qualified us to share in the inheritance of the saints in light. For he rescued us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved Son, in whom we have redemption and forgiveness of sins. I said last week there was much we can learn from Paul's practice of praying and the content of his prayers, what his prayers were made of. For what should we pray? Well, Paul instructs us uh, in many places, but in Colossians 1 is one of those places. He puts some of his prayer life on display so we can see what the prayers of the Apostle Paul look like. This is the kind of praying he did as, as a rule. And we want to go over a quick review of what we covered last week. Um, first of all, we start in verse 9 with Paul's reason to pray. He says, for this reason also, uh, since the day we've heard of it, we cease not to pray for you. Paul had heard a great report about the Colossian believers. He'd heard about their faith. He'd heard about their love. And so he says, for this reason, we're praying for you. We want to keep you in prayer because you're believers coming into the faith. We want you to grow in the Lord. We want you to be strengthened in God. And so we don't want to fail to pray for you. Intercessory prayer, as we said last night or last week, is, is vital. Praying for others is vital uh, in a believer's life. It's vital that we all pray for each other and that we pray for maybe the difficulties that we're going through. We also notice regularity in Paul's prayer. He said he's praying always in verse 3, verse 90. He says, we have not ceased to pray for you. And so prayer is not a one-time activity, praying for others. It's an ongoing thing. We're, we're always praying for one another. It's something that we do as a habit of our life, being faithful and consistent in praying for others. And then we notice the request in Paul's prayer in verse 10, or verse, 11, verse 9, rather, he says, and this is the main request in the whole prayer, he says, we are asking that, we're asking God that you may be filled with the knowledge of his will and all spiritual wisdom and understanding. They wanted the believers to know the will of God, to know what the will of God was, what it entailed, what it meant. And they wanted them to have an understanding of that, and so they prayed for them. And we need to pray for each other that we'll know the will of God, that our believers in our church will know what God's will is, that we'll be students of the word, so we can understand what his will is. That was his request. And then that led us to the purpose of Paul's prayer in verse 10. He says, we're praying this, that you'll know God's will, so that, as Mike emphasized the word so that as a purpose clause this morning, so that you will walk in a manner worthy of the Lord to please him in all respects. And so we want to we please the Lord. The reason we want to know the will of God is so we can do the will of God. See, we want to know it, and then we can do it so we can please God. That's going to make us pleasing to the Lord. And that's Paul's goal for the Colossian believers, that they please the Lord. And so how, how is that to be accomplished? Well, we said last week there was four participles, excuse the word participles, that explain what it means to please the Lord, that follow that phrase there, that you might be pleasing him in all respects. And those four are this. 
A person that pleases the Lord, in verse 10, first of all, will bear fruit in every good work. Secondly, he will be increasing in the knowledge of God. Thirdly, verse 11, he'll be uh, strengthened with all power. And fourthly, he will be full of thanksgiving. Tonight, we covered the the, the other two last week. We're going to pick up with the third of these, strengthened with all power in verse 11. This is how a believer can please the Lord by being strengthened with all might. It says in verse 11, according to his glorious might for the attaining of all steadfastness and patience. Right off the bat, you can see three words that have to do with power in verse 11. Strengthen, see the word power in the middle, and near the end of that first phrase, you see the word might. So you can see the obvious emphasis on that idea of the power of God. So far, we've looked into the text and we've seen things that we're to be doing to please God. We're to be bearing fruit in every good work. We're to be increasing in the knowledge of God. But now the Lord tells us that all of this is done not in our own strength, but in, in the strength of God. Because he says we're to, be, we're to do all this uh, strengthened in God uh, and not in our own strength. And you know, this is something that is taught throughout the Bible. God tells us to do something. He gives us a command. He exhorts us to do something. And then he says, but I want you to know that you're going to be doing this in my power. You certainly can't carry out the work of God in your own strength. It can't be done. You have to do it in the power of God. It's over and over again in the scriptures. For example, Ezekiel, chapter 2, verses 1 and 2 says this. The Lord said to Ezekiel, son of man, stand on your feet that I may speak with you. As he spoke to me, the spirit entered me and set me on my feet. He said, Ezekiel, I want you to stand on your feet. And the next verse says, the spirit came and and stood Ezekiel up on his feet. So I'm saying that what we do, we do in the power of the spirit of God. We never do it in in our own strength. We could add also to the fact that fact that verse 9, is, he's already hinted at this by saying that we're asking that you may be filled with the knowledge of his will. The word filled is passive idea, and God has to fill us with this knowledge of his will. C- certainly we avail ourselves of Bible study, but God is the one who imparts to us the knowledge of his will and understanding through the Holy Spirit. We talked about that last week. And so what we do, we do in the strength of God, and without his strength, we do. Jesus said, without me you can do what? John 15, you can do nothing, right? Nothing at all. Not spirit. You won't do anything spiritual without the help of God, without the strengthening of God. So look, let's look at these three words of power that are mentioned in verse 11. Notice that second word is, says power, and it simply is that. It's just a noun referring to power, but it's described as all power here, which is either full power that God invests us with or power of every kind. The first term, strengthen, is, is also a passive idea, and it, literally it's this. It's, it means being strengthened. You're being strengthened with all power according to his glorious might. The power that we are strengthened with is, a source, is from a source outside of ourselves. It doesn't come from within ourselves. We don't muster up some kind of inward strength to do the work of God. Something that's inside us is not there. It doesn't come from self-confidence. It's something far beyond that. It's the power of God. Paul says we put no confidence in the flesh. So this source of power that we're being strengthened with comes from outside of ourselves. Verse uh, 11 says, uh, thirdly, this power is according to his glorious might, that is God's glorious might. The might here refers to God's inherent strength, strength that's inherent in God himself in order for him to rule over all people and things. the, The power of God is supreme over all other kinds of power. And often you see the power of God used in connection with the resurrection of Christ. For example, let me read Ephesians 1, 18 to 20. 
to you. It says in Ephesians 1.18, he said, Paul is praying again here, and he says, I pray that the eyes of your heart may be enlightened so that you will know what is the hope of his calling, what are the riches of the glory of his inheritance in the saints, what is the surpassing greatness of his power toward us who believe. These were in accordance with the working of the strength of his might, which he brought about in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places. And so this is the kind of power God is capable of, power great enough to raise Christ even from the dead, power over death, which is amazing. And don't think that that power of God was only for another day and age. We look back in, in Acts and we say, and we're tempted to think, well, back in Acts, that early church had the power of God. There was miracles taking place, apostles were here, great things were happening, and the church was spreading like wildfire everywhere, and it was unbelievable. Numbers were being added to the church, great large numbers. And so the power of God existed in that day, but we don't have that power today. That's not even available to us anymore. That was back then. But the, the power of God is important in the life of the believer in every age, whether it's the time of Acts or whether it's right now. Just because we don't see visible miracles taking place or we don't have apostles anymore around doesn't mean that we are without the power of God to do the work of God. Being strengthened with God and his power is just as important today, even in the mundane matters of life, especially maybe in the mundane matters of life, as it was back then with all the miracles and all the activity taking place in the early church. So why is the power of God so necessary in the 21st century? Well, look at verse 11, the last part of it. Spells out the reason. It's necessary, verse 11 says, for the attaining of all steadfastness and patience. For the attaining of all steadfastness and patience. Wait a minute. You're thinking, we need the power of God, he says. And you might think, for what reason? So we can have a great revival, right? So we can have another awakening, maybe. So we can see tremendous miracles taking place, but that's not what he says. He says you need to be strengthened with the power of God in order that you might have steadfastness and endurance in your life, that you might persevere through the difficulties of life. That's what he says it's for. Let's look at those two words carefully, the word steadfastness and the word patience. Steadfastness is a compound word. It means to remain under something. You're remaining under something. It is a resolute endurance under difficult circumstances. It reminds me of the Navy SEALs. I've told you this before. Uh, they have that training exercise where they have to get a group of four guys under the 400-pound log, and they have, to, they have to stand under it for a long time and just stand there. And this is after a, a lot of exercise, and they're already worn out. And the whole thing idea is to stand under it and bear up under that load. Uh, 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 and so God's power is for us to stand up under difficult circumstances. It, is character, it characterizes someone who is not easily give up under suffering. Someone's involved in suffering a believer. He's not giving up easily because he's strengthened with the power of God for endurance. It's got the idea of carrying forward with tenacity, with courage. This doesn't mean you're perfect in the, in the trial. Look at Job, who had a great difficulty. But you're carrying forward with tenacity and courage. It's perseverance in the performance of a task that God has given you. Persevering through that task through a hardship, through a trial, you're persevering through it. It's a refusal to give up to despair during the trial. Tempted, you're tempted in a trial, a difficult trial, to despair, aren't we? I think of Dr. Martin, who we were 
thinking might show up tonight. We were going to cut this sermon short a little bit, not because of the Super Bowl, although that might have been another reason, but because of Dr. Martin, we were going to pray for him as a church. He's undergoing severe physical testing right now. And uh, it could, I could see, I saw him the other day, and I thought to myself, Dr. Martin teaches at Clearwater Christian College, by the way. I thought to myself, you know, he could really despair under these circumstances he's in. Many things he can't eat right now. He can't keep down. Just a long list of foods he showed me, normal foods that you and I eat every day. He can't, he can't even eat them. He's losing a lot of weight. And so this idea of steadfastness is endurance. It's, it's, a, it's translated endurance, the same word in Hebrews 12.1. Let us run the race with endurance, same word there. And it's that, the, the verse there is, is comparing a Christian to an athlete who's running a long-distance race, uh, a, a marathon. Marathon today is 26.2 miles, correct? And uh, we have a marathoner in here. And uh, it's not an easy thing to do, to endure through that length of, of a race, uh, 26 miles. The runners say, some runners say that by the time they get to the 20th mile or so, they hit what they call the wall. And that is a time when they're just exhausted and they're, they don't want to carry on. They're worn out and they're, 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 their energy is depleted and they want to, and they, have to, and they feel heavy in their legs. They just want to walk and not run anymore and just kind of give up, really. One marathoner said about hitting the wall, he said, it felt like an elephant had jumped out of a tree onto my shoulders and was making me carry it the rest of the way in. That's how it felt to him, carrying this heavy load in this endurance race. But a marathoner has to push, push through the wall and continue the race until he finishes. And so it takes endurance to run a marathon. It takes endurance to live the Christian life. And that's the point in Hebrews 12.1. Endurance to live the Christian life. It's not a quick sprint and then it's over with. No, it's a long marathon that must be endured. Sure, we must endure joyfully, but it must be endured nonetheless because it's oftentimes difficult. And so Paul says, in, or so the writer, whoever the writer was in Hebrew says, let us run with endurance the race that is set before us. By the way, Hebrews 12.2 points to the greatest example of endurance, Jesus, who suffered on the cross, the shame of the cross. And so endurance is necessary in the Christian life. And in this endurance that God gives you by his strength will enable you through adversity and difficulty and afflictions and trials and persecutions even. Now, it's easy for me to stand here behind this podium and say this, right? But it's a, diff- it's a different thing for me to be in, in the middle of a trial. And I thought about this a lot. Okay, I'm, I'm telling you, the, you people this, but what, what's going to happen to me if I'm in a difficulty or trial? We'll find out when I get there, right? But hopefully you guys are praying for me that I'll be strengthened with the power of God. So he talks about steadfastness. He talks about patience also. That we are strengthened with God's power for all steadfastness and patience. Patience is a state of emotional quietness in the, in the midst of an unfavorable circumstance. You're in a circumstance that's difficult, and yet inside you're emotionally quiet because you're trusting in God, because he's strengthening you with his power. It is a, it's the idea of a person who's exercising restraint, even though he's being frustrated maybe. He doesn't seek revenge against people who would oppose him, this type of person. He's going to withstand opposition without any re- retaliation. He's going to show patience in the midst of a difficulty. Um, he's got, got, got to give in to an out, outburst of anger because he's mad and upset and frustrated at the trial he's in. He's going to remain calm 
because the peace of Christ is ruling in his heart. He's not going to get out of control. And this is what this is saying here. And you all know that patience is the fruit of the Spirit, right? Fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, uh, faithfulness, patience, and so on. Mike showed that this morning, too. I didn't, didn't know you were going to do all the verses. but uh, And so f- patience is the fruit of the Spirit. And so these are, this is very important that we're strengthened with the power of God for the attaining of all steadfastness and patience. Now, Paul referred to both these terms, steadfastness and patience, in 2 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 4. Listen to what Paul says about he and some, his, his, his uh, companions in the gospel. He says this, But in everything we are commending ourselves as servants of God, in much endurance. That's the word used in uh, Colossians 1. We, we commend ourselves as servants of God in much endurance, in afflictions, in hardships, and distresses. Think Paul had it easy? I don't think Paul ever had it easy. People talk about wanting to be like the Apostle Paul. Well, you know, to be like the Apostle Paul, you've got to go through the trials he went through. He was in distresses. He was in beatings and imprisonments and tumults and labors and sleeplessness and hunger and purity and knowledge and patience and so on. It goes like that. And so Paul knew about endurance. He knew about suffering long with problems and and difficulties. In fact, in Acts 16, he and Silas are beaten with rods. They're they're thrown into prison. And what they do at midnight? What was their response to all that? Saying praises of of saying uh, prayed and saying praises to God, right? That was the response to that. It's the same thing, kind of thing. Colossians 1 is talking about. When James wrote about the same type idea about trials, he said this, the testing of your faith produces endurance, right? And let, and listen to this, testing of your faith produces endurance, and let endurance have its perfect result. In other words, let it run its course. Let the trial run its course. That's what God has designed for you. Let it run its course. Oh, we'd rather get out of it, right? I'd rather get out of a trial the minute it hits. But he says, let it have its perfect result so that you may be mature and complete, lacking in nothing. So the Lord brings about circumstances and difficulties in our life to teach us to become mature in Christ, right? A wrong response to, to, to a hardship can lead to despondency and discouragement. And a right response can lead to patience in circumstances and patience with people, which is needed to do the work of the ministry uh, for any believer. So the trials experienced by Paul taught him to say this in Philippians, I have learned in whatever state I'm in to be content. That's amazing to, to be able to say that, content in any circumstance. He said, I've learned to do, with, without, I've learned to be, uh, to do well in prosperity and also to do without completely. I can be content in that circumstance as well. Now you might be thinking to yourself, to be this way, to, to have steadfastness and endurance, this is impossible. How can I ever get to the place where I can be like that? And I would agree with you. In our own strength, it is impossible to achieve this level of commitment, of spirituality. And both of these virtues, steadfastness and patience, are beyond human capacity. They're beyond human capacity. When it comes to spiritual life, they are. So what's the answer? The power of God is. How, how do we make it through difficulties in life? How do we make it through the trials that come our way? How do you make it when something bad happens to you and, and you don't know what to do? You make it through with the power of God. And we're to, to pray for other believers to be strengthened with this power. 
That's how. We've all known people, and I thought through this, I thought, <clears throat> we've all known people who have made it through difficult circumstances with not even, the people that didn't even know God, that were self-sufficient and made it through difficult circumstances. I thought of the guy, I was telling Mike this the other day, I thought of the guy back in 2003 who was climbing the mountain, <clears throat> I think in Colorado or Utah or somewhere, and uh, he was pinned by a boulder, and his arm was pinned by a boulder, and he was trapped, and uh, he couldn't get out, and he began to think to himself, I, there's only one thing I can do, and that is cut my arm off uh, so I can get out of this situation and live, or I'm going to die out here. And so he, I read something about this yesterday, the other day. He, he said, I, I thought about it, and I thought about it for several days, and I didn't know what to do, and I didn't want to do it. All he had was a dull pocket knife. And he began to think about how he would do it. And he said, I even prayed to God. This guy's not a believer to my knowledge. <clears throat> I mean, I'm sure he's not a believer after what I read. He said, and I'm not criticizing the guy, it was a difficult circumstance. He said, Lord, if you're, God, if you're up there, uh, help me through this, uh, you know, rescue me. And he, he said, I looked for a sign from heaven, I saw nothing. And I thought, well, what did I expect? So then I prayed to the devil. And I said, devil, if you can get me out of here, then do it. I don't care who gets me out of here, just get me out of here. And nothing happened. So he eventually cut his arm off with a dull uh, pocket knife. And he attributes, and he got out of it alive and got back to civilization. He attributes his, his triumph in this circumstance to his, self, his, self, uh, uh, his, his own mental fortitude. He said, I did it because I had the mental fortitude to get through. And he was self-sufficient. It reminds me of the Stoics who, in the third century, <clears throat> they were all about, self, about endurance. They were all about self-sufficiency. They, they would try to withstand a difficult circumstance with calmness, without complaining, at least they said they did. But you've got to understand that they had the idea, they revered the idea of self-sufficiency. I can do it on my own strength. It can happen. It will happen. So I asked myself, then why is it we need the power of God if people can do things on their own with their own self-sufficiency? If they don't really need God, why, why do we need God, the power of God? And I thought about a couple things. I thought, well... It could be that in those circumstances, like Aaron Lee Ralston in uh, the Northwest in the mountain, it could be that uh, we could say that God's common grace was upon him, and God providentially did get him through the circumstance, whether he wants to credit God or not, number one. Also, we could say this. One of these circumstances is a purely human accomplishment. A, a person can, yes, develop self-sufficiency to get through circumstances in life. It's possible, yes. It happens. It's happened all the time. The other, the believer, is a supernatural accomplishment, which gives God glory in a hard and difficult circumstance. And, and a peace is in his heart that no one can explain because the peace of Christ resides in him. The Stoics might grit their teeth in a circumstance, a difficult circumstance, and come out on the, and get through it and come on the other end with what? With greater pride, right? Look what I did. But a believer is not going to do that. He's going to come out and glorify God through the circumstance. Do you think that the Stoics would glorify God in their circumstances that they endured? Do you think they would joyously thank God, the Father, as it says in verse 12, because of enduring a difficult circumstance? No, it wasn't about God. It was about the, the Stoics. And the Stoics were all about being self-sufficient. And, and a believer cannot depend on self-sufficiency to do the work of God or to walk with God, or to be a spiritual man, it's impossible. 
It doesn't work that way. Yeah, can I learn to climb Mount Everest one day maybe? I don't know if I can do that. But let's say climb, uh, is there a hill over in Zephyr Hills I can climb somewhere? Uh, climb something. Do something that's an attainment I can do. Yeah, I can learn to do something that would I can do in my own strength uh, that would give me glory, that would not give God glory at all. But what can I do as a believer? I have to do it in the strength of God, right? Only then will he receive the glory. Because the, the power of God is beyond human capacity. And that's what I'm talking about. Only the Lord can bring about, can bring you through a difficulty and give you the endurance that will glorify him and that will take, make you a testimony for God. And no other way can it happen. Let me ask you a question. Do you know of someone in a difficult trial right now, that's a fellow believer who's going through a difficulty right now, a trial? Think about that for a minute. Do you know of someone who is going through a difficulty in their life, a trial of some kind or a hardship or something that demands endurance, like a Dr. Martin. You, you, do you wish you could do something for that individual? There is something you can do. You can pray for that individual to be strengthened with the power of God for all steadfastness and endurance. That's what Paul prayed for. Now, we can talk about praying for this and that, but that's what he prayed for right there. He prayed that they would get through with the power of God. And the believer, and that's pleasing to God. We're talking about being pleasing to God. And the believer that does this and that's pleasing to God is going to be a tremendous testimony to the world about the power of God, not his own self-sufficiency. And so we're talking about depending on God's power. And lastly, how can we please God? Uh, Paul prays that, uh, that uh, we should be giving thanks to the Father in verse 12. Giving thanks to the Father. What a surprise. Paul's talking about thanksgiving again. He does it over and over again. Verse 3, we give thanks to God, Paul said. He says it here. In chapter 3 of the same book, Colossians, he talks about it, verses 15 and 17. Chapter 4, verse 2 of Colossians, he talks about thanksgiving again. Whenever, I guarantee you one thing, when Paul's praying or he's instructing on the subject of prayer, he's going to somehow, some way, work his way back to thanksgiving. He talks about thanksgiving constantly over and over again. It's good that we have all these references to Thanksgiving in the Bible to make us, to remind us over and over again, we have got to depend upon God and no one else. So why do we give thanks to the Father? Because it's pleasing to God. He's our Father. That's an affectionate term. He's our Father. He loves us. And and it follows then that we would be filled naturally with gratitude for what he's done for us, right? Can you imagine a a, a good earthly father who provides for his children? He gives them a nice home, and he gives them food to eat, and he gives them clothes to wear, and he gives them video games and toys to play with and all the extras that go along with it. Can you imagine that child never being thankful to his father or mother for any of that? That would be a total ingrate, wouldn't it? And there are many children in America who are spoiled, rotten, who are never thankful to their parents, don't show one ounce of gratitude to their parents for what they've done for them. I'm not thinking of anybody here in this church, by the way. I'm looking at these guys. I'm not thinking of these guys. But in the same way, our Father in heaven has blessed us with all spiritual blessings in Christ. All spiritual. The least we could do is to be grateful to him for what he's done for us. It's the least we could do. He's pleased with with this heart of gratitude, that expresses itself in praise to God. And this is not a duty, another, another duty to perform. Oh, we've got to do this too. We've got to give thanks to God. <laughs> because he says 
in verse 11, the, the last word in verse 11, after the little semicolon, and by the way, your ESV may say just the opposite. There's been a, there's been a debate among translators as to whether this word joyously goes with the previous phrase uh, concerning endurance, like the King James, New King James, yes, I'm going to call it your translations, ESV, or does it go with the following phrase like the NASB and others do? And I'm going to follow the translation I'm using here. He says, joyously giving thanks to the Father who has qualified us to share in the inheritance of the saints in light. And so this is a duty that's, it's not a duty, but rather it's a joyous privilege. Literally, it's with joy. With joy, he's giving thanks to the Father. He's doing this with joy. So it's not an obligation. It's rather a joyous privilege. There are three reasons why the Colossian believers are to give thanks to the Father. All of the, all of the reasons are due to the fact that God has taken the initiative and poured out his blessings upon us in many ways. First of all, the Father, as I said, has qualified us to share in the inheritance of the saints in light in verse 12. Qualified us to share in the inheritance of the saints in light. Notice the phrase, to share in the inheritance, which is actually kind of a paraphrase because the phrase is actually this. It literally means the portion of the lot, the parcel of the lot. What, what does that mean? Well, you remember back in the, in the Old Testament when Joshua brought the people into the, the Canaan land? They conquered the land. What did they do after that? They divided the land up, right? That was their, their inheritance. Joshua 14.1, Now these are the territories which the sons of Israel inherited in the land of Canaan, which Eleazar the priest and Joshua the son of Nun and, and the heads of the households of the tribes of the sons of Israel apportioned to them for an inheritance by the lot of their inheritance as the Lord commanded through Moses. In other words, Israel inherited the land of Canaan, and each tribe inherited their portion of the entire inheritance. They got each got their parcel of land, their portion of land. And that's the idea here, that just as Israel had an inheritance, a total inheritance in the land of Canaan, each one receiving a portion of that land, all believers have an inheritance in Christ, and we each get our portion of that inheritance, a portion of the total inheritance. What is the inheritance that believers have, are going to receive? 1 Peter uh, 1, 3, and 4 tells us, it says this, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who according to his great mercy has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead to obtain an inheritance which is imperishable and undefiled and will not fade away, reserved in heaven for you. Ultimately, our inheritance is in heaven. It's in heaven. And we'll be with Christ for eternity and his presence forever, and we will inherit this. And we can't earn this inheritance. No inheritance has ever been earned. It can't be earned. It's something that is given. It's a gift of God to us. Always, God is, it's always about grace with God, always about him giving us something. The text here says that the Father has qualified us to share in the inheritance. The word means he's made us fit for this inheritance. He is made us competent to receive the inheritance. He's made us sufficient to receive the inheritance or adequate to receive it. You see, before the Colossians knew Christ, they were totally inadequate to receive the inheritance of heaven because they didn't know Christ. They weren't a part of the family of God. They were totally unfit to receive the inheritance of heaven. In fact, they were completely incompetent spiritually to receive the inheritance of heaven, but God has made them fit by saving them by his grace. In Christ, they are fit and sufficient. In Christ, we are fit 
now to receive the inheritance of heaven, which at one time we weren't, because God is, Christ has given us his righteousness. He saved us from our sins. He's made us new creation in Christ, and it goes on and on. And so now we are fit for heaven. And it's by his grace only, as I say, and through no merit of our own. Note that this inheritance in verse 12 is called the inheritance of the saints in light. The inheritance of the saints. That's not a mystical thing, some strange idea. I think he's referring to the kingdom we're in now, the kingdom of light versus the kingdom of darkness. And you can see that in the context. Look at the next verse, verse 13, <clears throat> Colossians 1.13. He rescued us from the domain of darkness, transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved son. And so the inheritance is in light as opposed to darkness. Acts 26.18 says this. Paul says that he was sent to the Gentiles. Why? To open their eyes so that they may turn from darkness to light and from the dominion of Satan to God. And so now they're, we're, we're going to share uh, with the, uh, the, uh, the inheritance with the saints in light, that is, that is in the kingdom of light. We'll share with them in that. So we're to be thankful to God for this. This is all the work of the Father. And so it pleases God for us to be thankful for this. <clears throat> what else should we be thankful for? Verse 13, as I just said, the Father has rescued us from the domain of darkness. And we just read that verse, but just a little bit more of this verse here. Prior to salvation, we were in the domain of darkness. That's the domain we lived in. That's the domain we walked in. Ephesians 2, 2, uh, we walked according to the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now working in the sons of disobedience. Yeah, we were under the dominion of, of Satan, right? The domain of darkness and spiritual bondage to him and spiritual ignorance to him. We didn't know it because we were spiritually ignorant. But we were in his kingdom, in his domain. But the Father... The Father invaded this domain of darkness and rescued us. Rescued us. It was a great rescue operation that God was involved in. Just like the Exodus when God pulled the people out of the house of slavery. What's, what's another name for the house of slavery? Egypt, right? God pulled them out of Egypt where they were in bondage as slaves to Egyptians. And God came in, invaded that kingdom, and rescued them. And brought him back, brought him out of that out of that land through the Exodus. And so, once again, we see this is totally and solely the Lord's doing. We're thankful for that, and we're to be thankful for the fact that the Father has transferred us to the kingdom of His beloved Son. Verse 13, the last phrase, and that's the positive aspect of this rescue mission. He transferred us. He took us out of the kingdom of darkness and came in, invaded that kingdom, took us out by His grace, called us to Himself, saved us, and He's transferred us. He's re removed us from this kingdom into another kingdom altogether. That word transferred is used in history to describe a population resettlement, moving a population from one place to another. In this case, we're transferred to the kingdom of his beloved son that is Christ, the son that he loves. And it's all because of Christ's death on the cross that all this took place. So you have two kingdoms. Two realms, darkness and light. Two authorities, the lesser authority, Satan, the supreme authority, Christ. And so you would ask yourself, and I know this is a Sunday night crowd, the faithful few, as Mike said, are you in the kingdom of light? What kingdom do you belong to? Murray J. Harris, let me quote something from Murray J. Harris, a great commentator. He said this, Believers have been rescued from the gloomy domain and tyrannical rule of Satan by being transplanted as free colonists into the kingdom and peaceful sovereignty of Christ to become citizens in the realm of light. 
So God has made this total transfer from the, Satan of, the kingdom of Satan to the kingdom of light, kingdom of Christ's son. And then in verse 14, he said, he tells us a couple more things. It is in this son in whom we have redemption. We have redemption in this son of, in Christ. Redemption is, is buying a slave out of slavery with a ransom and setting him free. And Christ did this for us. He paid for our sins on the cross, and he set us free from our sins. 1 Peter 1.19, we were redeemed with the precious blood of Christ as of a lamb unblemished and spotless. This redemption is only found in Christ. And notice that this is a present reality. It's an existing reality because he says in verse 14, present tense, everything else was a past tense until this. The last few verses. In verse 14 he says, in whom we have, present tense, right now. We have that possession right now of, of uh, redemption. We have redemption through him. So it's a present reality. And then lastly, in the Son, we also have forgiveness of sins. Forgiveness of sins. We're pardoned through Christ and through what he did on the cross. I don't know if you've ever read Pilgrim's Progress or not, but if you haven't, you should, definitely. Spurgeon read it through over 100 times in his life. Uh, that's how important he thought it was. I've mentioned it before, but there was a man named Christian in Pilgrim's Progress who had a heavy burden on his back. Terrible, heavy burden. He carried with him always and a man by the name of Evangelist comes up to him and says, you need to take a journey to the celestial city. And he starts his journey to the heaven, to the celestial city. And he has got this burden. It's just bearing him down everywhere he goes. He can't get rid of it. There's nothing he can do about it. It's making his life miserable. But then he comes up to the cross. And when he comes up to the cross, the burden falls off his back. And it rolls off his back and rolls away and disappears. He never sees it again. Why? Because in Christ we have forgiveness of sins. Our burden of sin is taken care of. And Christ forgives us from our sins. So we have much to be thankful for, don't we? Paul gives three reasons here, but we can thank God for so many things. And so we need to give thanks to the Father because it pleases Him. And we need to pray for others that they'll do what Paul said in this request here, in this, in this prayer here, so they might be pleasing to God as well. So this is the, Paul, the prayer of Paul for the Colossian believers. Colossians 1, 9 to 14. Doesn't Paul teach us how to pray? Doesn't he really teach us how to pray in these verses? You can just to get a glimpse of his prayer life. Same thing as Mike's been talking about in Ephesians and different times. And you see how Paul prays and how we're to really pray. It's the responsibility for all of us to pray for other believers. In this way, believers will be able to please God if we'll pray for them and their needs. Let me close with the words of the prophet Samuel in 1 Samuel 12.23. This is a great verse, 1 Samuel 12.23. You know what Samuel said to the people after they had <clears throat> determined they wanted their own king? And Samuel said, no, you don't need a king. God's your king. And they, no, we want a king. And, and God says, just let him have a king. And it's not going to be easy for him. They rejected my rule. I'll let him have a king. But the people say, well, wait a minute. We want Samuel to pray for us still. And Samuel says this. 1 Samuel 12, 23, he says, Far be it from me that I should sin against the Lord by ceasing to pray for you. Far be it from me that I should sin against the Lord by ceasing to pray for you. We do a great disservice to believers when we don't pray for them, don't we? Let's not sin against them by ceasing to pray for them. Let's pray. Lord, we do thank you for your word tonight. Uh, we just pray we would be among those who... Pray for each other, intercede for each other, asking that you might strengthen 
all believers in our church with the power of God so that they might be able to carry on in their lives through whatever difficulties they're, they're, they're in or will encounter in the future. They might be able to serve you so that Satan won't get a hold of them, so their lives won't fall to ruin, so that you'll be glorified in all things. And we just pray we'll be a praying church and an interceding church. We pray this for Christ's name. Amen.